Hi, I'm Samir Kaji, and welcome back to another episode of Venture Unlocked, the podcast that takes you behind the scenes of the business of venture capital. On this week's show, we have Megan Bent, founding partner of Harbinger Ventures, a firm that invests in early stage CPG companies that are led by female or diverse founding teams. Before starting the firm in 2016, she spent time as an investor at Revelry Brands and Parthenon Group. This was a fun conversation for me as the firm has such a unique model of having a small concentrated portfolio of only five to eight companies. And it was really fun unpacking how they think about mitigating concentration risk, how they think about ownership and entry prices, and what specific traits they look for in founding teams. Now, without further ado, let's get into the episode to hear all of that and more. Megan, it's so great to have you on the show. Thanks for having me. Well, let's start from the uh, the top and get into what catalyzed your personal experience into investing. How did it all start and, and what led you to where you are right now? So Harbinger, at, you know, at, at a really high level, is a consumer fund focused on the early stages of growth equity, specifically Series A. And we have a strong bias towards what we like to call fast-moving omni-channel consumer goods. Um, we like to lead those rounds of investment become really meaningful minority shareholders, but then really roll up our sleeves to become a significant intellectual partner alongside our financial stake as well. My interest in getting into consumer really started with great people. I had the good fortune of, of all things, interning in a CPG startup, you know, way back in the early 2000s when natural foods was really taking off. And that just carried a passion for early stage consumer brand building and entrepreneurs generally. And that was my avenue into investing. I moved on to join that exited entrepreneur in building a private investment platform, investing friends and family capital into a market where he generated his own success. And, you know, from that non-traditional investment avenue formed a strong operating bias and a strong perspective on where consumer investing could innovate and move forward such that it creates better alignment with the underlying entrepreneurs, stays more relevant over the long term, um, and spends more time in the actual operating model versus just the investment model. So you and Seth were working together at your prior firm and then ultimately launched your current firm, Harbinger, in 2016. What were some of the specific insights that you saw that led you to start your own firm and really adopt the the type of investment thesis that you have. So Seth and I absolutely had worked together for almost 10 years on opposite sides of the table prior to coming together to work at Harbinger. And that relationship, sort of yin-yang and counterparty, so to speak, is very much in the DNA of our company. It's this sense that Capital is most productive when it's filtered through the lens of an operator. And so it's highly efficient, it's highly aligned, and ultimately is sort of well-matched with where the value is really created in the portfolio. So that strong operating bias um, is core to Harbinger's DNA. The second principle we carried over, and this sort of came from me sitting on the boards and Seth operating women's apparel companies or pet food companies, was the mismatch between the consumer, which is 80% of the time, you know, a female, um, and the those individuals sitting around the table. And the number of times, you know, Seth looked at his 
all male leadership team or, or predominantly male board and said, wouldn't it be great if we had better representation of the actual consumer in the in these key decision points? That also is a major influence of Harbinger. We have a, a, a mandate around um, female founders being in our businesses that creates a really nice balanced representation in our portfolio companies as well in terms of, you know, relatively over-indexed in female leadership, female board members, female LPs, et cetera. And, and we think that's just an important and progressive way to consider business risk and opportunity. And then finally, the concentration, uh, which I think we'll go into more deeply later. We saw a real opportunity to rethink portfolio construction based on what we experienced operating these businesses and what we experienced in generating returns and how that could be better represented through the capital partners as well. Of those insights, I mean, I think they're all very, very interesting and, and directly on target. In fact, I remember having this conversation with the, the folks at Forerunner in the early days where their entire thesis was centered around the fact that you have so many great consumer companies that are founded, really focused on the female category as their main consumer. But then you look at the management team and it was all males and how does that actually work? And so They've obviously constructed an incredible organization. The other thing that um, you mentioned earlier that I do want to dig in before we get into your portfolio construction, which I do think is very unique, is the fundamental aspect of how you think about you know, the early stage of growth equity. When most people think about growth equity, these are more mature companies, uh, Series B, Series C, and later. But I think I heard you say that early stage in your your case of growth equity is really a series A. Why is that series A for the type of companies that you're working with? For us, we think those growth that growth equity mindset where you're looking at scalability, platform durability, really digging into product market fit through the lens of quality revenue, gross margin, path to profitability is really relevant in early stage consumer goods. You know, these are businesses that have supply chains. Um, they have real products that have to move from, you know, manufacturer to retail. They have packaging, complex working capital cycles. And so unlike a tech company where it's just about adoption or eyeballs or members, um, the scalability here requires real operational excellence very early in the business model. So our general belief is if you take too much of a vent approach too late in a company's cycle, um, you damage a lot of the quality and durability of the, of the brand potential long-term. And so from our perspective, right around the Series A, as a company has a couple million of sales, you know, maybe is running a test at Target, maybe has several thousand members subscribing online, this is really the time to ensure that the capital that's coming in is as much focused on the platform durability and scalability as it is on acquisition. And so it's that's the mindset we bring to Series A and the types of entrepreneurs we're looking to work with. And our, our belief is that it's very appropriate um, and, and the sort of optimized value add lens to apply specifically to our sector and category. How does that then translate into the type of portfolio you build, right? Because typically when you look at a tech, let's say it's a traditional IT focused series A firm, you know, you look at the normal portfolio construction and it's typically 20 to 25 companies. And it's of that size really to mitigate risk of any company going to zero. 
I know your model is dramatically different in that you have a very small group of companies, and I think that's five to eight companies per portfolio. How do you get comfortable with the overall diversification, or in this case, lack of diversification risk in terms of managing to the type of returns that you're looking at, which are very typical venture type of returns? Yeah. So first of all, I think, you know, it's helpful to remind ourselves that there's many paths to an excellent weighted average fund outcome. And as we were thinking about portfolio construction, what we wanted to ensure was that our construction really aligned best with the category fundamentals. So in tech, you have, you know, sort of the ability to build monopolistic superpowers. You have the ability for capital to really unlock new TAMs. And as a result, you know, the exit profiles defining success are enormous, you know, in the billions, right, of dollars. Consumer, and, and so the diversification, you know, taking a couple zeros in order to be able to, to gain one or two of those, um, you know, really enormous outcomes works. And it kind of makes sense. And, and the more diversified you are, the faster you can move, the faster you can move, the more you optimize access, the more you optimize access, the more likely you are to get that next winner. And so you create this self-fulfilling prophecy that's really about picking those one or two shoot the moon outcomes. Consumers really different. You know, the average exit in a CPG business, if you're selling to a strategic or a financial sponsor, is more in the hundreds of millions of dollars. And so you can't, you know, the the um, risk and upside model are transformationally different. Capital doesn't tend to unlock new TAMs. It tends to share shift within TAMs. And so you're sort of operating in a more constrained, sober environment. That doesn't mean the multiples can't be great, but it means you have to really think about what you're paying, how you're structuring those transactions, what you're underwriting, and um, how you can um, sort of build great outcomes there. So from our perspective, the way that this really works is, one, you need large positions um, in these businesses to generate fund returning outcomes. Um, you know, we want to be material minor minority investors. So at that $150, $200 million exit, you know, our base underwriting re returns the fund four to five times, you know, is the multiple, not 20 to 30 times. Um, the second is you need consistency. We can't have zeros. And so that that relates to how we structure investments, but also our diligence process um, and the, the quality of assets we're looking to buy. It also relates back to consumer, which has real assets that trade. And so, you know, you, you also have the ability with good operations and prudence to reduce the, the likelihood you take a zero. Um, and then the last is you need capital efficiency because the market can't absorb overcapitalization the way you can in tech. And so, you know, from, from all of those elements, like the best thing we could do is create a really thoughtful, well-constructed, concentrated portfolio that allows us to move really diligently, really pragmatically, and really deeply within a well-constructed group of investments that are um, well positioned to do exactly what you should do in consumer, which is return a couple multiples each um, at really um, sort of base case exit outcomes. And so that's that's sort of how we think about the, the portfolio construction value of concentration. The second, though, that I'll say is more of an internal mindset. You know, as I mentioned, I, I was really trained more by an operator than an, than an asset manager or, you know, private equity hedge fund or financial institution. And so 
everything we do is sort of run through an operating bias that influences our strategy. And those three operating principles are one, fewer things done better. You know, in an organization that's growing really fast, that has a lot of volatility, simplifying, simplifying, rationalizing, rationalizing is usually the fastest way to unlock productivity efficiently in an operating business. It it travels over to an investment strategy as well. You know, we're able to invest intellectual capital alongside our financial capital, and that's regenerative, right? That creates long-term benefits. Um, the second is product differentiation. You know, funds should have a perspective on who they are, where they fit in the industry, and why entrepreneurs should take capital from them. If you have a point of difference and you're a premium product, you have um, more leverage on negotiating on price, on ensuring you get the access you want and the terms you want. You know, it's, there's a correlation, right, between being an, uh, an, an investor people feel like they fit with and those that they don't. So decommodifying the product is something we think a lot about. Done right, you know, these things should add up to measurable benefits in our allocation model. You know, it should show up in pricing, it should show up in access and ultimately multiples. Um, so the operating principles aren't just ethos, like they're strategies as well. There's a lot to unpack there, which I know we'll get to through the course of this conversation. However, first, I would like to double click on one thing, going back to something you said in the past, which is the the type of founding teams that you're investing into with the CPG investments you're making. You have focused a lot on diverse teams, and you focused very heavily on the entrepreneurs when making decisions. At the Series A, what have you found to be the most successful traits of the founding teams that you've backed? So, you know, first of all, the types of founders we're looking for, we'd like to say that they're going to be successful with or without us. And so our involvement, our value add is really around optimization, acceleration, enhancement versus, you know, a foundational element. So we're looking for really talented individuals that have demonstrated ability to create a disproportionate, unexpected advantage, um, you know, defying the odds in their market. You know, sometimes that shows up in their marketing funnels and um, their brand residents or their sales channels. But, you know, at, by the Series A, you can sort of see these teams that have demonstrated an ability to break through. Um, so that's really important to us. The second is we like a really good balance of that visionary, that um, sort of unusual growth mindset, which is absolutely necessary to sort of overcome the odds with a good pragmatic thinker, um, an ability to operationalize ideas, somewhat unlike our tech colleagues that really are sort of most focused on the, the visionary and the sort of like operationalized later from everything we talked about around our category CPG, but also our, our fund model, we need, we need a little bit of both. Right. And so sometimes that comes in the form of co-founders where you have a really nice partnership, someone's setting a vision, someone's operationalizing it. And sometimes it's a single individual. What we like to say is the combination of either the co-founding team or the entrepreneurs we're investing in should have the capabilities independently of sort of hiring a mega team to get the business to roughly 40 to 50 million in sales. That, that supports our investment case. It supports our base outcomes. Not all entrepreneurs are well-suited for that. And um, because there's a lot between, you know, the five, 10 million in revenue when we invest up to the 50 that requires things like building an organization. So they have to be someone who wants to build a team. 
team. Um, it usually involves capital raising. So they have to be compelling, right? They have to be someone that brings, um, that's a natural salesperson across multiple stakeholder groups. Um, they have to be really, really obsessed with their consumer and like intellectually curious about their own industry. Um, and they have to be uh, humble, right? And their willingness to learn and grow as they go along. So we've developed, you know, a variety of different litmus tests that sort of accompany our process to ensure that we are backing entrepreneurs that will be great to work with and sort of really can support those, those types of um, you know, growth requirements. One thing I've been thinking about over the last couple of minutes is that while you're in many ways very different from a traditional venture firm with the type of companies and the portfolio construction, one thing that you are very similar with a lot of firms that are making concentrated bets is the notion of being very conviction-based when you make a decision to invest in a company. And within a partnership, sometimes getting to full conviction across every single member can be difficult and sometimes there's conflict resolution that you have to do. I'm curious as how you all think about it internally when you do have a company that maybe one of you has conviction on and the rest of the partnership perhaps doesn't. How do you resolve that? Does every deal need full consensus? And then how does that play into the overall decision making within the firm? So conviction-based investing, it's such a great way to put it. Absolutely. Like you have to have passion ultimately that sort of tips you over the edge and, um, and then the data backstops it and, uh, and, and sort of supports the underwriting case. Um, so how we develop conviction time, right? We're a relationship-based investor. We tend not to participate in processes where I get a call from the founder that says, data rooms opening Friday, term sheets due in seven days. And you say, that's awesome. Call me if you need advice as you get those term sheets in. Our process starts with people and building that longitudinal data, that relationship data around how are you running your company? How are you overcoming hurdles? How are you incorporating good advice, bad advice? And so many of our relationships before we invest are built over a year where we really have the, an opportunity to see how the entrepreneurs make decisions and build their organizations. Um, the second is sort of like immersion-based diligence. So going head deep into the category, you know, really becoming super consumers or super users of the category. So you have a sense of, does this product really stand on its own? Does it have a point of difference? Could you convert our own internal cohort of, you know, consumers, friends, family, et cetera. Um, and then the last is um, sort of good responsiveness in, during diligence. So I, I always think like how you operationalize diligence is indicative of how you run your business. So I, I look at things like response times, professionalism, level of detail, quality of materials, um, and compare it back to sort of their own operating models as well. So we go pretty deep on diligence to build a huge level of conviction that supports a one in five selection criteria. And those those processes are supported qualitative, quantitatively. They're also supported by the full group. So unusual to our firm, we have one investment partner, which is myself, and we have two operating partners. And those operating partners are brought in very early in the diligence process with very specific areas that they're focused on within their domain of expertise. And so we're really looking to sort of pressure test or build conviction 
both from the investment thesis perspective, but also the operationalization. You know, can we actually do this beyond it just being a good idea? Um, so that allows us to build a lot of confidence. And then, you know, we move aggressively and quickly and proactively um, and can close as fast as any fund, right? 14 days if you want, 45 on average, um, to get the actual transaction done. We just take longer on building conviction up front. How do you think about the current world where, you know, in your case, the diligence path is is one that takes a little bit of time, right? You have to build the conviction, understand the the business, the entrepreneur, multiple people on your team are thinking about those things. In, in today's world, especially the last, I feel like, 12 months or so, you've had everything move at warp speed where rounds are getting done very quickly. Have you had to adopt and evolve your model for the current environment? And how do you navigate in a situation where you may not have, you know, three or six months to really spend diligence? I mean, have you found ways to still be successful and get into the companies that you want to get into, despite the longer gestation cycle for the diligence? We have. And I would say, you know, as much as diligence processes on a whole and sort of transaction timelines on a whole seem to have hugely accelerated, particularly in sort of tech influence spheres, the converse of that is like the the uh, it's chummed up entrepreneurs who say, that's not how I want to raise money, right? You know, I, I also want to know the people on my cap table before I take capital from you. I think there's a generation of entrepreneurs coming up that are very thoughtful about the true cost of capital. And it's not just the valuation or name recognition or ownership position. It's the partnership and the alignment and the value add. And so, you know, we we see those entrepreneurs surfacing, right? And seeking out a different type of capital partner. So I, I actually think um, it con like in a sort of strange in inverse way, it's been beneficial to us in terms of um, finding those entrepreneurs even more easily. The second thing here for us is, we add a lot of value during our process. And for someone we really like, we start that really soon. So, you know, you can imagine a typical cycle. Someone might talk to an analyst. The analyst gets packed to the VP. The VP passes up to investment committee. And then, you know, five days later, they hear if there was interest. We start when with partners on the phone, sometimes two. And so from that initial call, they're getting advice. They're getting advice on the sizing of the round, the timing of the round, the KPIs and, you know, metrics for success coming out of that round um, and also on their business model. So, again, sort of for, for a certain type of entrepreneur that can give them pause. And we recently closed around with a company named Fig Face out of Vancouver, just act like really exciting brand where that, that was very much the relationship. You know, they they sort of had a process they'd mentally mapped. Um, we had the chance to meet them very early before they'd ever kicked off that process and sort of influence the trajectory, timing and goals of the process. So again, you know, the fact that we only have to do five investments really helps because I don't feel the same level of frenzy or pressure around deployment, deployment, deployment. We, we do have the luxury of being really patient. And so far that that has working well for us. So as you think about that, portfolio, and you mentioned five, not having the deployment pressures, not having to do every single deal, and really fitting within the parameters that you've set out in terms of what you want in an entrepreneur, business fundamentals, and the ownership that you get. How do you then 
contrast that against making sure that you're actually having enough companies in your portfolio to really diversify away from some risk? Because there is, in, in my estimation, a little bit more risk today in the sense that there's so much capital going into companies. There's a lot of competition. A lot of your companies may be facing other things that actually attack capital efficiency. What is the internal mental model of thinking, okay, five companies, we've done that for a long time. It's still the right model. Has anything changed from your perspective in the market that would adjust how you think about the number of companies in your portfolio? Sure. So, I mean, you know, outside of things that have happened in the market that make us think about number of companies in the portfolio, we're also just internally learning. Uh, you know, we launched in 2016, 2017, and we're humble and saying, maybe it's not five, maybe it's six, maybe it's four, maybe it's seven. So, you know, internally, right, we have this sort of constant intellectual curiosity around what's the right level of concentration given the market in- environment. Um, but let's say roughly we'll stay relatively concentrated. The question is, where do we absorb some of the risk? Either um, supply chain rising costs, marketing rising costs, personnel um, rising costs, you know, it, sort of how do you protect the integrity of, of the business model? And um, there's there's two things, you know, one is um, as a team, right, where we bring in a very high level of operating talent into the organizations early. So our personal opinion, right, is the best way to protect against volatility or rising costs or overcapitalization in the consumer environment is to have a really great CMO who's deeply sophisticated on understanding how you leverage product, channel, and marketing diversification to create the right level of opportunity capital efficiently. We are deeply experienced in omni-channel. And for us, omni-channel does not mean omnipresent. It's very sequenced. It's very choreographed and intimately tied back to a consumer-centric approach to distribution. We've never been believers that digital-only brands have a real long-term advantage or can really scale cost-effectively relative to omni-channel peers. So that's that sort of suited us really well because with um, the right level of diversification, you can absorb a little bit more risk in the model as um, you know consumer trends move back and forth. The second is we also have an operating partner who's um, deeply financially and operationally minded, which goes to diversification in our supply chains and high margin models, again, designed around being able to absorb some of that risk. So as we're looking at making investments in consumer, more volatility, more capital, maybe more consolidation on the retail side, there's still a ton of opportunity. The underlying fundamentals that drive consistent M&A here are still very present. Strategics struggle to stay relevant over very long periods of time with their consumer. They tend to acquire those assets to, to maintain the relevancy. None of that's changed. They pay a really great multiple for those assets. That stayed consistent over time. And so the question is just how do you operationalize against the opportunity and make sure you have enough um, flexibility in your business models to sort of absorb the ongoing volatility and capitalize on it. And so that, that's sort of how we think about um, maintaining the concentration and the upside with, within this environment. All of that makes complete sense to me, especially given, given your model. 
what are you seeing? And this is more of a broader question and more global. I mean, obviously, the last 16 months have been completely marked by the pandemic. What's changed in consumer behavior that you think is one transient, perhaps? And what do you think is going to remain the case post pandemic? What have you seen with your companies and just generally on the uh, on the on a global trend perspective? This is such an interesting question. And and I'll say that it is still sort of revealing itself. You know, Q2 2021 in some of our businesses was more volatile than Q2 2020. You know, the 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 reopening of the United States resulted in um, a collapse of online engagement, online search, online traffic, participation in certain categories, the same way it drove enormous forced trial last year. And so the whiplash is still, um, you know, alive and well and, and sort of adaptiveness is still required. Um, but there's some early indications, you know, of, of where things may stabilize post pandemic. So, you know, the, the first one that I think is really helpful um, to think about here is like there was enormous forced trial last time using digital resources, digital tools, whether that was like Instacart or shopping online or um, QR codes and restaurants, you know, those, those types of little things. Um, and consumers are really fluent. They're really comfortable. And, and at this point they may be verging on like in a sense of entitlement around access to those tools in the activities and things that they really like. So from our perspective, as we look at new businesses or our own businesses, really ensuring that the underlying sort of tech that is supporting consumer service can, um, is very well built. And, um, you know, that that sort of element of, of manual, intimate, human touch versus digital, automated, seamless, you have to get the right balance there. So um, that's something that I think is, is not going away. The second is there was like more home chefs, more home gardeners, more home fitness, a lot of hobbies shifted into the home. And people are kind of happy there because it turns out, you know, you're in more control of those hobbies. They're self-soothing, they're enjoyable, they're shareable. And so we expect a sustained lift across those different industries, maybe not relative to 2020, but relative to 2019. And, and, and so for our businesses where that are involved in home cooking or home baking, we just continue to see sort of really positive engagement um, post pandemic. The, the things that I think were sort of more transient in nature were the ones where the patterns were directly correlated to at home routines. So you saw like a collapse of on the go food and beverage. Um, I, I believe energy bars, nutrition bars, on-the-go snacking will rebound, you know, as consumers are back out of home. It's really convenient. It sort of matches the longer-term trends around, uh, the longer-term trends around um, portability um, and, you know, less substantial meals and things like that. So I, I, we believe that'll rebound, you know, um, routines around like cosmetics, color cosmetics, where you saw a collapse in lip and an explosion in eye, that's going to restabilize as people are showing the whole face again. You know, you're not going to do half your face and not the other half of your face. So those are things where, you know, you can directly correlate a change in behavior to a change in consumption. And as the behavior returns, you'll also see, I think, um, the product trends return. And then finally, and this is kind of interesting, and I feel, think is real um, still settling out is you know, historically, there'd been this growing trend in prioritization of, of consumer purchase drivers where you might see Q2 
convenience at the top, followed by health and wellness, followed by sustainability or whatever it might be. And, and those are all getting renegotiated. So during COVID, you actually saw safety um, at the top and, and health and wellness got bumped to the bottom and convenience was redefined to mean something entirely different. So as we come out of COVID and, and during COVID, we've had you know many sort of global indications that maybe sustainability is more relevant. We're really interested to see how those hierarchies shake back out and where consumers are willing to pay a premium again. And the biggest question mark is around, will they start paying for sustainable packaging, sustainable sourcing? Because historically they haven't been willing to pay a premium, but they've just wanted the, consu- the product to provide it for free. So given all those trends, and, and those are all really interesting. And I always think about, you know, as an investment firm, you're always looking to peer into the future and figure out where the, uh, the puck is going. And you have to delineate between what's, here and now transient because of the current environment and what has you know real staying power. Given the things that you've described that do have staying power, how does that translate into the firm itself and how you're thinking about structuring and evolving your firm in, in, the, uh, in the coming years? So we're continuing to push ourselves internally on the future of Omnichannel. You know, when, when we started the firm five years ago, um, our definition of Omnichannel and our comfort underwriting, it was relatively advanced. You know, we were pretty good at D2C and Target, which was a very unusual pairing at the time. As we look towards the future, right, both of those channels and the crossover between those channels is is maturing. There's less of a perspective or an advantage as a fund to staying constrained to that definition of omni-channel. So pushing the boundaries on that. We've looked at businesses that are using different methods of direct selling. Um, Going back to retail, we just invested in our first business that owns four-door retail um, to, to ensure that we stay really well ahead of our peers in the industry, but also the consumer in terms of how they like to mix and match channels and can continue to find efficiency and opportunity in immature or um, sort of unrealized pairing of certain channels. So that's that's something that is a initiative we've taken on internally and started to resource and invest against as well. Um, The second is continuing to look at our um, underwriting models and ensuring they stay flexible. So I'm a big believer that discipline is, it's probably come through in this conversation, process discipline are really critical core attributes of, you know, investors in this space, but really good guardrails should actually unlock creativity in the most productive way possible. You know, time constrained brainstorming tends to yield the best results versus white faith, similar principle back to our portfolio construction. So internally, we have bumpers around which are non-negotiable. Those are the things where, you know, um, you invest in the wrong person and that, you know, that investment from day one is challenged. People are non-negotiable to us. We have other elements that are non-negotiable. But within that opportunity set that's, that's, um, you know, circled in the sand, so to speak, we have a lot of flexibility and we're very adaptive, we're very open-minded, and we're looking to be entrepreneur-led because the best ideas around where the opportunity is coming from, you know, come from those types of minds, right, versus the investor mindset. And so I think getting the balance over the next uh, couple of years and, and, and bringing your LPs along in that, right, and saying things are moving so fast, so here's where we won't negotiate and here's where we are looking to be pushed and led and how we will continue to add value 
in those models where we where we are learning as we're growing is just, I think, a really critical way to stay. You have you have to stay relevant. Yeah, I agree with that. And it's hard to think of a single instance where a firm or company has sustained long term excellence without dynamically evolving and learning. And earlier, you mentioned some of the things that were non-negotiable, your relationship with the entrepreneur pre-investment, the DNA of the type of entrepreneur you like to back. But what are some of the things that from an investment standpoint are considered negotiable within the firm? Yeah. So on the negotiable items, the, the framing around that for us is we generally believe no entrepreneur has the strategy right the day we invest, right? The entire mandate of a Series A investment and, and sort of the realization of value is partnering with the founders to solve for the right strategy as quickly and efficiently as you possibly can and sort of maximize the, the scale of, of that solution. And so the things that we're you know, flexible on are things like channel construction. We've done all you know, 100% digital brands. We've done businesses that have no digital exposure, but have, you know, are, are exclusively retail. And so we don't put parameters around go to market. Um, we're just looking for intelligent, advantaged go to market. Same with marketing. Uh, the, one of our most recent investments is a business that does almost no marketing on paid social. And um, that that's great. You know, it's a core competency that's underdeveloped, but it's also uh, a core competency that's overdeveloped, right, in other areas. And so those types of go-to-market playbooks are where we really have a ton of flexibility. We're looking to understand why they built it the way they did and ideally tie it back to a consumer insight that others haven't really understood. So it's advantaged in some way. Um, underfunded by competitors, et cetera. And the second is ideally it ties back to the consumer, the entrepreneur superpower. So you sort of get like a double benefit of, of generally this, this playbook being underdeveloped and then it aligning with, you know, the real advantage the entrepreneur brings to the table. And so if you look across our businesses, you know, superficially, they may all look kind of similar, like, oh, I get I get the kind of stuff Meg and Seth like to invest in. And, you know, I could I could close my eyes and, and maybe pick one out of a lineup. But if you go below the surface and you look at their sales models, their organizational design, their marketing models, even sort of like their margin constructs, it's really, really different. And we're super comfortable with those types of things. What about negotiable versus non-negotiable on items such as ownership and dollars invested initially? How do you think about that? Obviously, we've, we've spent a lot of time talking about conviction. The number of companies is going to be limited. And in my mind, that would actually lead me to believe there's less flex on those type of items, given the, uh, the type of portfolio. But what I might be mistaken. How do you think about those two aspects? And are there times that you will flex beyond the bumpers on either of those two metrics? The, the very few times we've flexed on those types of things, you know, ownership, terms, leadership role, they've been our worst investments. And so part of our discipline against those types of terms, you know, more institutional underwriting elements, pricing, ownership, size of check, you know, size of round, governance, board role, things like that, 
are both economic in that they truly backstop our portfolio allocation model and are really important to, to risk mitigation and things like that. But we have found them to be probably more importantly or equally importantly to be indicators of the type of entrepreneur we're investing in. So an entrepreneur that's like, I want $5 million from you, but, but and you'll own you know 15% of my company, but no, you can't join the board. That is a red flag all day long to us in terms of what is it going to be like to work with that person. Super voting shares, you know, through to allocated to a founder in consumer tends to be a red flag. And so we we are pretty hardwired in terms of the structure that tends to correlate with good partnership. And a big piece of that is because our terms are fair. And we feel very strongly that they are terms that maximize alignment, that really support and incentivize and motivate entrepreneurs, and that they reflect real conviction. So, you know, when you're overstructured to offset valuation or founder risk, like you're usually imbalanced in your in your actual conviction, right? You're being pushed somewhere where you're uncomfortable. And we found that structure is like the worst way to <laughs> overcome that. Usually sort of reevaluating your conviction is. And so for us, um, because we think our terms are fair, we pay a premium price for a premium asset. Um, we feel really good that we can get the deals done, staying disciplined and increase the value of our partnerships. Yeah. And, and it's interesting because embedded in there is a lot of learnings and it actually is a great segue to our final section, which is I'll ask you three questions, get your quick reaction. The first being you've been on the other side of the table as an operator. And now with Harbinger, now it's almost six years, I guess, investing. What's the most counterintuitive lesson that you've learned that going into it, you would have believed to be completely different than what's actually transpired? So on the operating side, you know, you have this strong bias towards action because you're supposed to get things done. And on the investment side, it's, a lot of times it's the opposite, right? Like the best strategy is inaction. It's been sort of like a challenging and humbling learning process, whereas an investor, you could spend a lot of time trying to act and activate and resource something that's not in your control, right? You own 10, 15% of a company. You don't operate it. It's it's not your final say. And you can waste a lot of brain cells, right, um, rather than sort of sitting back and letting an entrepreneur realize um, the value of that advice and integrate it or vice versa. And so, you know, patience um, is probably the most counterintuitive, non-transferable operating principle that we've had to bring over. And, and a lot of operators turned investors have had that same type of realization of what is that right balance of how much time you actually spend to help? And how do you get to a point where you're helping but you're actually not deterring what the entrepreneur wants to do and how they do it. So it's something that I've definitely seen, you know, quite often. The other part though, as an investor beyond investing, there's a lot of things that you have to do in running a firm. There's fundraising and there's all of the LP relations. There's the things that you have to do in terms of operationalizing your product for your entrepreneurs. What have you found to be the most challenging thing about actually running a firm? This has been a huge area of development for me, you know, speaking really candidly, because my um, investment experience was done um, through SPIVs previously, right? So we sort of single purpose investment vehicles, bringing together cohorts of investors and then managing them much more individually. And so as I went out to raise 
capital and people asked me about the firm, you know, I sort of gave them this dumb look early on and embarrassingly it was like, what are you talking about? I'm going to, I'm going to raise some money. I'm going to make some great investments and you know, what else is there to talk about? And, and so this has been an area of learning and joy, getting to build your own culture, but getting to build your own brand and sort of really think about the elements of the business I'm in, not only the businesses that I'm investing in, And so like all businesses, I think the most challenging element and where ultimately will sort of make or break Harbinger as a firm is on people and ensuring that the people we bring on really can represent the brand we've built and our point of difference at scale. So it's the number one thing we think about and talk about um, and want to innovate around as well. So as you think about people, you've worked with a lot of different people on the entrepreneur and investor side. As you build out your own ethos and your own culture, is there an investor out there that you particularly aspire toward that you followed that actually does impact the way you run your own business? Who is that and what about them? Well, first, you know, I just like to give credit to my peers in the industry. There are so many firms big and small that I, I follow and listen to and learn from. And, and I'm, I'm sort of grateful for those in and outside the industry. Uh, in terms of where I draw inspiration, um, may, maybe <laughs> not unexpectedly here, I, I pull from like untraditional sources and, and those that are outside of my industry. And I'll point to two. So the, the first is Mackenzie Scott, um, if you've watched what she's done with her philanthropy, which is a form of investing, right? She has broken many of the traditional rules in terms of how you allocate from a foundation and transformed her ability to generate impact, you know, pulling forward capital, um, accelerating pace of capital versus um, the standard deployment model. Uh, that sort of constant pushing of the boundaries in terms of like how you use capital, how you measure success and and how you steward resources. I think it's really healthy for our industry versus, you know, falling into uh, the temptation of stagnation where you're raising capital, generating fees, and you're just like, well, that's working. So let's keep doing it. Um, So I, I admire the way she's pushed the boundaries and sort of caught people off guard that way. The second, and this one's a real TBD, but is uh, what's happening with consumer retail investors. You know, meme stock investors through one lens, if you want to define it this way, are like a new form of values-based investing. Their values are like nostalgia, right? Or anti-capitalism or, or something that we're sort of, the traditional financial markets aren't yet describing as, as a value they can measure, but it's really impactful. And so I'm, I'm very interested to see if their values-based approach will actually unlock value in stocks that would previously have been um, destroyed or value had been left unrealized. So I don't know. I don't know if it's inspirational, but it's curiosity for sure. And it's fair to say that's TBD for sure. But I, I'm not at all surprised that you pick some unconventional things to aspire toward. The model is very unique. Uh, Congratulations on the success so far, the companies you've backed. I'm excited to see and track the performance in the the future. And Megan, thanks again for, uh, for being on the show. Thanks as always for having me. It was great to chat. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of Venture Unlocked. We really hope you enjoyed our episode with Megan. To learn more about her or Harbinger Ventures, be sure to go to ventureunlocked.substack.com for detailed notes on the show and my ongoing commentary about the world of venture capital. Venture Unlocked is also available on iTunes or Spotify for download. And while you're there, please leave us a rating and a review as it really helps us out. 
And don't forget to hit the subscribe button in order to get each and every Venture Unlocked episode as soon as it's released.